Good morning, brothers and sisters. I pray that you are joyful in the Lord as you've come here this morning to commune with God, but to commune with God as a collective, as a people. I remember uh, when I first became a Christian in my early 20s, going to churches where it seemed as though the service was really just a, um, a devotional experience for a bunch of individuals. So it was uh, a sort of a, an environment where everything was centered on the individual and his or her relationship with God. And so there were other people in the room, but really it's just me and Jesus. That is not church. That is not what we are here doing this morning. We are uh, me and Jesus with Jesus's other members of his body. So we are one member, each of us is one member of Christ's body, and we are in a room right now with a whole lot of other members of Christ's body, and we just praise God for that. The kind of individualism that just sees it being all about me and Jesus uh, really does ignore so much of what we get in God's Word. And uh, as was read earlier by Trevor, you see the, the way in which Christ conceives of His church as the Spirit is building us up into Christ together. And he's making us into a structure, a superstructure that is the household of God. And so we just praise the Lord this morning that we're, we're not just here having a private devotional experience, although that certainly is always a component, uh, but we are here together as God's people worshiping him corporately. If you would please go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 35, and we will be in Exodus 35, 1 to 36 7. Our time in Exodus has now brought us back to the tabernacle or God's dwelling place, God's house. And I hope you're not saying, oh no, not the tabernacle again. Um, you might be saying that, uh, just in all honesty, uh, because, you know, this is tough stuff to go through. We, you remember when we were going through looking at curtains and uh, and all of the, the, the boards and the details of the metals and so forth. And we went through all of that material. And it is easy to see a lot of that as uh, being sort of boring or unimportant. And we really just sort of skate through that and get to something that we can chew on a little more devotionally. But I hope, uh, if you were here when we went through those instructions in detail... I hope that you are able to see all the ways it highlights the holiness of God, His glory, what He calls His people to, and how it all points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and if, you, if you still feel that way, I pray the Lord will work in your heart on that as you come more and more to see His glory, even in those portions of His Word. But we're back at the tabernacle, God's house, and in in fact, as we talked about several months ago, the tabernacle takes up so much of the book of Exodus. And we get the instruction, which we've already looked at, and then the construction. So instruction to Moses and then the actual building of the tabernacle, uh, which we'll come to soon. And uh, we're not going to go through that uh, as we went through it the first time. It's repeated material, so we will take that on in mass. And in fact, next week is going to be kind of shocking for you in terms of how much material we are going to take on in one sermon and how much material we're going to read together uh, at one time, you know, much like they did in the Old Testament and much like Paul tells Timothy to the, commit himself to the public reading of Scripture. So we're going to see that more next week as we take on 
quite a large chunk of Scripture. But why is it that Exodus has so much material committed to the tabernacle? Why so much focus on this tabernacle? Well, the answer really is simple. Israel was rescued to be with God. So we think of the book of Exodus, and the centerpiece of Exodus is the Exodus. It's the bringing out of the Israelites from Egypt, from slavery, to, uh, to, to himself, that God has brought them out. He's, he's rescued them. But as I said there at the end, he brought them out to himself. He brought them out to be with himself, to enjoy God's presence, to know and worship God as his holy people. This is the reason for the Exodus. This is the reason for all the great stories that we read in Exodus. And as I've said before, this is the reason we were saved. We were saved to be with God. Saved to have God's presence and to be with God for His eternal praises. That in the ages to come, He might be praised for the glory of His grace that brought us to be with Him. And this is just really important for us to remember in all of our going and doing. And let me just say, you might be a very active member of this church. You might be a very busy server. And on the outside, it, it, it's just, it just looks like there's just all this robust fruit. And you're going and you're doing and you're serving. But the question is, are you with God? Are you walking with God? God. We have to remember that in all of our going and doing, we were saved to be with him, to know him, to walk with him, to be with him through this life, and to be with him into eternity. So one of the things that I hope you'll do as you read Exodus for years to come, from now on, I hope that when you think of the great stories of Exodus, the plagues, the parting of the sea, the manna from heaven, the water from a rock, that when you read these stories, when you think of these stories, that you will always see them with an arrow pointing towards the tabernacle. So that you won't see Exodus as the good bits and the boring bits, but you will see all those bits that you thought were particularly interesting and awe-inspiring, and you will always see them with an arrow coming out of them going to the tabernacle because that is precisely what is happening in the logic of the book of Exodus. The presence of God. This theme that we get to see so developed extensively in Exodus is one of the most important themes of the whole Bible. I want you to notice how the Bible begins and ends with this theme. So let me read you a verse from Genesis 3 and then a verse from Revelation 21. So these are the bookends of the Bible. The very beginning and the very end, we see this emphasis on God's presence, on being with God. So Genesis 3, 8. And they, speaking of Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Well, that's the fall. That's after the fall. But what I want to draw your attention to is what it implies. And what it implies is that it was commonplace that Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. That they enjoyed God's presence in the garden. And it's only after the fall that, that, that there's a shift occurs where now they do not want to be in God's presence. They hide from the Lord. But before that, the implication is that the Lord walks with them and talks with them in the garden. And then we get at the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, verses 3 to 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place or tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore For the former things have passed away. Why will there no longer be tears and death and pain and all of that? And maybe that's what you fixate on and focus on when you think of heaven. But we have to remember what comes before that. It is because we will be with God. God will dwell with his people. He will tabernacle with his people eternally. And that will result in our glorification. Where we will forever be like the Lord. This theme, this topic of the presence of God is central in the whole Bible. And Exodus is the place where those foundation stones are laid. And so much of the significance of this theme comes into view. Today we come to the preparations needed for constructing the tabernacle. And so the title for the sermon this morning is Construction prepared. We're not at the construction yet, where, as I said, many of the instructions will be repeated, but we are at the preparation phase right before the beginning of the construction. So the title, Construction Prepared. God gave detailed instructions for building the tabernacle to Moses on the mountain, but this was followed immediately by the golden calf, And you you may not have put that together, but that's where we were before the golden calf. We had come up to the end of the tabernacle instructions, these long sections where God is describing what is to be made so that God's house can be built, so that God will dwell with his people there. And then we slide down, deep down, into chapter 32 with the story, the tragic story of the golden calf. In chapters 32 to 34, deal with the golden calf and its aftermath. But now, as we come to chapter 35, after God has responded to Moses' intercession, after he has assured the people that he will not withdraw his presence, after he has forgiven Israel for their idolatry, after he has renewed the covenant, now... It is time to build the tabernacle. Now it is time to build God's dwelling place. And as I've said many times, the appreciation of the tabernacle, of both the separations that are present and the access that is present, 
that really just could not be appreciated at the level it needed to be before the golden calf. And so we even see God's sovereignty over the golden calf sin. Notice that. Even over the events associated with the golden calf, we, we see God's sovereign purposes in preparing his people to really truly appreciate what the tabernacle provides. The atonement, the presence, but also the separation based on God's holiness. As we think about the logic of these chapters, one commentator, Dwayne Garrett, says this, the tent is a visible demonstration of the reality of forgiveness. One of the things that we're going to see as we watch the the Israelites prepare and then do it is that there's an eagerness, there's an excitement to all of this. And I think that is because every aspect of the work is pointing to the forgiveness that God has granted them. The fact that God is in fact going to dwell, he is going to give his presence, all points to his mercy, his forgiveness. We also saw this last week with Moses' shining face. As Moses comes down off of the mountain and the glory of the Lord is reflected in his face, that too was a reminder to Israel that God had forgiven them and that God's presence would go with them. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word together, we're in chapter 35, verse 1, and this is going to take us all the way to 36, verse 7. Thirty-five, one to 36, 7. This is the word of God. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense." and onyx stones and stones for setting for the aphod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent, and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat, and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils, and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps, and the oil for the light, And the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand. The hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court. The pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords. The finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place. The holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. 
Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ramskins or goatskins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the aphod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses, Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill Everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. You can go ahead and be seated. It is truly amazing, and I've said this many times, that we are gathered here in the 21st century, and we are standing up in, in a number like this with people gathered to read a text like this, uh, an instruction manual, basically, as we read it before, and here we get all of these details uh, of the ancient Hebrews in the building of their religious structure. This really is a testimony to the truth of God's Word and to the work of the Spirit, that we are not merely reading some ancient account of how something was to be built and then how it was built, but we are reading the Word of God, and that this fully equips us 
for every good work. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to read it and understand it and to apply it to our hearts. Father, we know that your spirit alone can incisively apply it to us individually in ways that meet us precisely where we are. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit would do that incredible, omniscient, omnipotent work this morning in each of our hearts. We pray that you would guide us to yourself and that you would be glorified in this place as we seek to understand your word by sitting under it, as we submit to it, as we hear the voice of the Lord, and as we submit to you as our King. Father, thank you for the grace of this moment, this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So you could come at this passage thematically or sequentially. And I really struggled this week as I thought about how to outline this. And I had a couple different outlines that I I was working with. But in the end, I decided to take it sequentially to simply work through it as it unfolds verse by verse. And when we do that, It comes to us in three parts. And so here they are. First, you get the commanding, uh, chapter 35, verses 1 to 19. And then you get the carrying out, uh, chapter 35, verse 20 to 36, 2. And then finally, you get the coming together. So God issues these commands to the people through Moses. And then you see these two streams of these commands getting carried out. And then in those very last verses, verses 3 to 7, you see how these two streams of commands come together as now it is time to build the tabernacle. So this really is meant to prepare us for the tabernacle by teeing it up, as it were, with these two streams of work that need to be done in order to make the building of the tabernacle possible. So we're going to walk through it in that way, the commanding, the carrying out, and the coming together And so first we come to the commanding, and for that we're going to be looking, I'm going to read sections of verses 1 to 19. So looking at at your, your Bible here, chapter 35, verses 1 to 19. We've just been told at the end of chapter 34 that Moses comes down the mountain with a shining face. And this really is an amazing part of the story in Exodus, maybe one that was new to you or one you've read before, uh, but it, it, is, it is really surprising that Moses comes down the mountain and his face is glowing. He's got these, these rays, and as the, the Hebrew verb implies, it's, it's like his face is projecting horns or, as you would understand, rays to be coming out of his face. He is radiating from his face the glory of Yahweh. Among other things, this is a validation of Moses' role as the covenant mediator. So uh, there's a lot going on, and we talked about that last week. But one of the things that the glowing face, the shining face of Moses, is meant to communicate is that God has put his stamp of approval, of affirmation, of validation on Moses. It is written on his face. Moses is the covenant mediator, and God is making that clear for his people. Moses speaks for God. He delivers God's word to his people. And that's exactly what we get here in chapter 35. As Moses assembles the people 
to hear what God has commanded. And this commanding runs all the way up through verse 19, and it comes in three parts. And you'll notice that from what we just read. It comes in three parts. And so here they are. First, the parameter to be followed. Second, the materials to be gathered. And third, the workers to be employed. So we're going to take a moment to look at each of those. But each of these commands is largely a repetition of what we've already seen in previous chapters. And so if you want to go back and look at these in more detail, go back to the sermons. And I'll mention the passages where uh, there, there are those parallels. But go back and look at, listen to those sermons on those individual passages. But much of this is repeated material. But it comes to us here packaged as a preparation for constructing the tabernacle. So first, the parameter to be followed. As in chapter 31, verses 12 to 17, here we have mention again of the Sabbath. So let me read to you verses 2 to 3. As Moses mentions the Sabbath, six, six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Work on the tabernacle is about to get underway. It's about to get really, really busy in the camp. And you can imagine all of the excitement and all of the hustle and bustle that will surround the making of God's house. The eagerness, the enthusiasm, the excitement that this is actually happening. God has forgiven us. God is going to come and dwell with us. And we're going to build this, this structure, this portable structure where God will come and be with us, his people. So there is all undoubtedly of this excitement and, and there will be. The reference here to fire being kindled here probably has to do with what will be needed to make the tabernacle. And in all of this working, in all of this doing, in all of this excitement, Israel is not to forget the covenant sign. They are not to forget the sign of the covenant that the Lord has given As chapter 31 says, this is a sign of Israel's holiness, of their being set apart for the Lord. So let me read that to you back in chapter 31, verse 13, regarding the nature of the Sabbath. And uh, we've talked about the Sabbath when we looked at the Ten Commandments. We talked about the Sabbath here uh, in chapter 31. And I won't revisit all of that, but if you want to look at what uh, was said there, go back and listen to those sermons. But here, what I want to focus on is that the Sabbath is, in the Mosaic Covenant, a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And we get that explicitly stated in chapter 31, verse 13. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Now, that's, that's interesting to us. You think all the commandments, this is above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Well, then the next word tells us that it's going to go on to explain why this is so important for the Israelites. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. In other words, the Sabbath is integral to the Mosaic covenant, to the 
old covenant in that it is a sign of the covenant that God has made in setting apart a nation for himself. So, for the people to abandon the Sabbath is for them to abandon the covenant. For Abraham to abandon circumcision would be for him to abandon the covenant that God made with him in Genesis chapter 17. This is one of the reasons so that God takes it so seriously when Moses is on his way to Egypt. And you'll remember uh, that his child is, is uncircumcised and God is going to strike Moses dead. And it is because circumcision is essential to being a Hebrew. And what we have here is that the Sabbath is essential to being part of God's covenant people, Israel. To abandon it is to abandon the covenant. It is to abandon the relationship all together. That is why the Sabbath is here put in such significant terms, even resulting in death if the Sabbath is broken. And if Israel is to abandon the Sabbath, what would be the point of a tabernacle? In other words, what the Lord is saying is that if you give up the Sabbath to build the tabernacle, the tabernacle becomes useless. Without the Sabbath, there is no covenant. Without the Sabbath, there's no relationship between God and Israel. And therefore, there is no need for a tabernacle where God will dwell with his people. And we saw the Sabbath being mentioned both at the end of the tabernacle description and then here we see it mentioned at the beginning of the tabernacle construction. And that shows us that God is being clear with his people that they are not to work on the tabernacle on the Sabbath day. Let me say this to all of us as we think about the implications of this for our lives. God does not need our work. He wants our obedience. This is precisely what's going on here with the Sabbath. The the people of Israel can do all this great work. And they can make perfectly all these things that are part of God's house, part of God's tabernacle. But that's not what God needs. God needs nothing. God can accomplish all of his purposes entirely apart from us. God wants our obedience. This means that we serve God on his terms. The end doesn't justify unbiblical means. Let me say it that way. The end result of reaching people, the end result of fill in the blank, whatever it might be out there that is a good and noble goal, the tabernacle for the Israelites does not justify, meeting that end does not justify unbiblical, non-God-ordained means. God wants us to pursue the end His way. Not on our own. Second, we see God's commanding regarding the materials to be gathered. So we see the commandment uh, regarding the Sabbath. Then we see the materials to be gathered. Look at verses 4 to 5. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart... Let him bring the Lord's contribution. This is then followed by the list of the items needed up through verse 9. And so you can see there 
From the latter part of verse 5 all the way up through verse 9, you get metals, yarns, fabrics, wood, oil, spices, and stones. All of these different things that will be contributed by the people of Israel. This is a repeat of what we looked at back in chapter 25 Verses 2 to 7. So if you want more detail on that, go back and listen to the sermon on that passage. And this came at the very beginning of God's instructions to Moses about how to construct the tabernacle. And here's what I want you to see. This is the key thing to notice. That this is entirely voluntary. Now this is strange to us a little bit, right? Because this thing must get done. This tabernacle must be built. This is essential to the relationship between God and his people. This is where God will dwell. If there was ever something that God would place a requirement on his people, a demand on his people, maybe a a religious tax, as we saw with the census tax, a religious tax on his people, you would think that it would be here. But God does not do that. It is to be a voluntary contribution. The Lord commands that the contribution be taken, but it remains voluntary as to who contributes and how much. This is a donation, not a tax. It is to come from willing hearts, hearts that want to give these things to the Lord, hearts that are committed to the Lord's presence and the Lord's glory, hearts that want to dwell with God. And so we get here the language of whoever is of a generous heart. In other words, whoever's heart, the the inner working of, of their being, the core of who they are, pushes them, compels them to do this, then have those people contribute insofar as their heart compels them to do it. This brings us, of course, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 8. Giving is discussed in the New Testament in these terms. And we get it here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. This is one of the main passages in the New Testament for the topic of giving. And here we read this in chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided In his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Which means that when we give to the Lord, God wants our hearts to be bubbling up with enthusiasm and excitement about all that God is going to do through that gift. What God is going to accomplish for the sake of his name through the things that we bring to him. Not reluctantly, not begrudgingly, not holding on to it so tightly until we have to sort of peel back each finger one at a time before it drops, but with a cheerful heart, a cheerful giver, as one has decided in his or her heart. And it is interesting in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, that this is sandwiched with motivators. God motivates the giving with these things. So the preceding verse, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
And we get a little more understanding of what this means in verse 8, after the verse we just read. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In other words, the more that we do and give to the Lord, God will cause grace to abound in our lives so that we will be able to continue to do good works. Maybe not on our own terms, maybe not at the level that we think we need to, but the Lord will cause us to abound in his own ways. This doesn't mean necessarily financially. Here it has a focus on God's grace working in our lives to give us the sufficiency in the things he's provided so that we are able to continue to give to help others. We need to notice also that all of this had been received from the Lord. And that's the same with us. The Israelites, when they left Egypt, were given these things from the Egyptians because God worked favor in the hearts of the Egyptians, Exodus 12, verse 36, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked, thus they plundered the Egyptians. Everything that the Israelites were donating to the Lord, contributing to the Lord's sanctuary, all of those things were given to them by the Lord. And as we said the first time when we came to this passage uh, in the, the previous passage on this, along the same lines is that everything we have is from him. There's not a single dollar. There's not a single penny. And as we said there, not a single breath that we have that is not from the Lord. When we hoard our things, when we hold tightly to our things, we are acting as though we produced that. We generated that. And that it belongs to us. Whereas open hands says to the Lord and says to all, no, this is from God. And God provides for everything that I need. And it is now to God. It has always been from God and to God. So we see here the command to take the donation. Third, we see the command that the workers be employed. In addition to materials, skilled labor will also be needed in order to construct the tabernacle. So as part of the Lord's message through Moses, we get verse 10. Look with me there. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. Then in verses 11 to 19, we get a list of what God had described to Moses on the mountain. And so here's the list, the tent. And there's more detail here, but I'll summarize it. The tent, the ark with its mercy seat, the veil, the table with its bread, the lampstand with its lamps, the oil, the altar of incense, the screen, the bronze altar, the basin, the court, the screen for the gate, and the priestly garments. These are the items that God has commanded to be constructed. And this will involve the recruitment of skilled laborers, craftsmen. As verse 10 says, they must come. They must come forward to do the work. And as we'll read later, they must be willing. So just as those who donate things, materials, just as they must be willing, so too must the workers who come to do the work be willing to carry out that work. So let me ask you this. What hold does God have, not just on your possessions, but also on your time? 
You know, sometimes we are really quick to give money, especially if you have a lot of it. Uh, Maybe the Lord has stacked it up in your life for his own purposes, and he's working out those purposes in your life. But, But having things is not an issue for you. There's lots of things, lots of means, lots of income, lots of money. And one of the things that we can fall into, if that fits you, is that you think you could just sort of give to things and that's it. But, but here's the question. God also demands our time and our energy, not just writing checks, but investing our entire lives in the work of God. It is not just the means that must be contributed There must be those who are willing to take time away from their families, to take time away from other work, other employments, from enjoyments, from hobbies, and so forth, in order to give time and energy and labor to the constructing of this tabernacle. And the same is true for us today. As we give our things and we give our time Unto the Lord. And so we see first the commanding that takes us up through verse 19. And now we come to the carrying out, the carrying out of this, of these commands. One of the themes that is going to carry us through the remainder of Exodus is this theme of obedience. God has renewed his covenant with his people, he has forgiven their great sin. And he calls them to a life of obedience. One pastor whom I think has, has emphasized this well in the Christian life and, and, and through that has emphasized the lordship of Christ in the Christian life is John MacArthur. And I've mentioned him before. And he focuses on the, the, this theme throughout the gospel of obedience, that to love Christ As Jesus tells his disciples uh, in the farewell discourse, to love Christ is to obey Christ. To have Christ as Savior means to have him as Lord. And that means to submit to what he says. Why do you call me Lord, Jesus says, if you do not do what I say? If you love me, you will keep my commands. This theme of obedience is massive in the Bible. It is massive. God has renewed his covenant and he calls his people to this life of obedience. These sections towards the end of the book highlight Israel's obedience. And let me say this uh, to us this morning. This is something that we really need to consider. Maybe you came in this morning and uh, you're struggling with this or that thing in your life. Maybe the problem is that that you've yet to come to a point where you're willing to admit this is disobedience, right? You're willing to say, "I I have a problem with this. I struggle with this. I, I, I sin in this. But, but not quite at the point of repentance because the point of repentance begins with this. I am rebelling against God. I am disobeying my Lord, my master. Are you willing to admit this morning that it is just sheer 
disobedience. Because until we are willing to admit that, there is no repentance. We'll just keep struggling. We'll just keep justifying. We'll just keep petting our sin, playing with it, fostering it, and continuing to do it. Obedience to the Lord is a massive theme, and it demands that we are willing to admit, Lord, I have been disobedient to your commands. I have disobeyed your word. Father, forgive me for disobeying your word. I turn from that to walk in you. The Israelites are doing what God has commanded them to do. These sections highlight this obedience. They are doing what God has said. They are living out the covenant relationship. God's gracious activity generates our obedient activity. You know, this idea that grace and obedience somehow uh, belong on different pages is, is silly. That's just bad theology. Taking apart theology and ethics and just sort of separating them and seeing any emphasis over here as, as moralism or legalism, calling it that rather than seeing it as an outworking of the theology that we find of God's grace in Christ. God acts graciously. We respond obediently. Those two things always belong together. God's grace to us in Christ then leads to our submission to His Lordship through obedience to His Word. Maybe you have given yourself a therapeutic explanation of your struggles and you see yourself more as a victim of your own sin than a perpetrator of sin. This is the road forward for us, people of God, is to obey the Lord and to turn from sin, to turn from golden calf-like rebellion. So here we read, first, that the people obey the Lord in making contributions. That's the first part of this obedience. They depart from Moses and return with many donations. Verse 21 summarizes it. Verse 21 summarizes it. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for all the holy garments. We then go on to read, that there is mass participation. Uh, This is not a picture of the people holding back, which is remarkable given what we've just read with the golden calf. Uh, This is a picture of mass participation. People are donating not just their leftover stuff, not just the stuff that's sitting in the corner of the garage that you haven't even thought about or looked at. It's easy to drive that stuff over to Goodwill. It's easy to give that that to someone uh, and then pat ourselves on the back. That's ridiculous. Here we see the, the most costly things, the precious things, gold and these costly, colorful yarns, and these fine twined linens being brought forward to be used. Skillful women spinning yarn and the leaders bringing precious 
stones. And it concludes with verse 29. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Now, before we move on, I want us all to take note of the language used in this section. We read here of hearts being stirred. We read here of willing hearts, spirits that are moved. So here's the question. Who's doing that? I mean, let's think about that for a moment. I think especially if, if you've struggled with the notion of free will and God's sovereignty even over the choices of man, over human hearts. Notice the language here. We've got stirred hearts, moved hearts, like, like water. Now, if, if you have water start to move, you're going to ask the question, who moved it? Who stirred the water? What stirred the water? An agent of some sort has to act on that water. Here we have stirred hearts, willing hearts, moved hearts. Who is doing all of the stirring? Well, we get a good New Testament answer in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Listen closely to this language. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, once again, there's that theme of obedience. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. And then he says this. By the way, the period is not there on human responsibility for obedience. The next part is this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will, what? Hold on a second, I'm, it's, it's all free, it's just independent. I will independently, then God responds to my willing. That's not what we read here, for it is God who works in you, just like he worked in Pharaoh's heart. He holds hearts in his hand, not just the weather, that's puny. He holds hearts in his hands. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, according to his sovereign will. So notice, even in all the obeying, we see God's grace. In all of our works, we can never uh, boast in anything we do. Just before Paul mentions the good works in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says that we can't boast. It's by grace, through faith that we've been saved. Not of us. It is not our own doing. It is a gift of God. And then he goes on to say that the very works we do, the very obedient acts that we carry out, were foreordained before the foundation of the world that we should walk in them. A prideful Christian is an oxymoron. That's a foolish thing. How in the world, how in the world can there be any prideful Christians? Given the nature of the gospel and the sovereignty of our God. The second command that we see carried out here involves the workers, which picks up in verse 30. 
and repeats but what we saw back in chapter 31, verses 1 through 11. God has chosen and empowered two men in particular. We see them here mentioned again. Bezalel of the tribe of Judah and Aholiab of the tribe of Dan. Bezalel has been filled with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, as we read there in verse 31. He and Aholiab will be both chief craftsmen and teachers. God has empowered them to to be able to do the work, but also to teach. God has filled them with skill to lead all the workers. They both know how to do it, and they teach. It's kind of like the university uh, professor in a medical school who practices medicine. You're glad if you're a patient that he teaches at the medical school because you know that he's up on the latest research. And you're glad if you're a student in medical school that he actually works with patients because he knows what it looks like on the ground. He's both a doer and a teacher. And here we see the same with Bezalel and Aholiab. God has filled them with skill to lead all the workers. But God has not just empowered these two men. He has done this to some extent with all of the workers. So look at chapter 36, verse 1. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. But this too is not compulsory. Remember, the workers have to come forward. They have to be willing. And we see this in verse 2. Everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. In other words, there's a lot of stirring going on. Stirring to give, stirring to do, lots going on in the hearts of the Israelites. So I think this is really fascinating. Even as we look at a passage like this, you might think, well, there certainly can't be much theological stuff here. Uh, there's, this is not one of those passages where there's really a lot. But what we find when we look at the details of these verses is that we see sovereignty, grace, obedience, an emphasis on the heart, the need for doing out of the heart. All of this is rolled into this passage. Some of the great themes of the Christian life, some of the things that bring us the most encouragement present here in the preparation To build the tabernacle. Just going to show us how all of God's word is important. And all of God's word is needed for our sanctification. Finally and briefly we come to the last set of verses. The coming together. Verses 3 to 7. And I want to briefly conclude with these verses. As you'll notice as the tabernacle gets underway in verse 8. Uh, We get this as the the final section before we read this in verse 8. So look at chapter 36, verse 8. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with the ten curtains. So when you get the mention of the curtains, you know that now the tabernacle is being constructed. But we have these verses, verses 3 to 7. Let me read those for us. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, 
each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough to do for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were, were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. So here we see the coming together of these two streams of commands. Remember, you get the commanding with regard to the contribution, that's one stream. And then with regard to the workers who will do the work, that's another stream. And then you get the carrying out of that in our last point. Now you begin to see these two things coming together, where the contribution and the workers come together. We see that the contributions are being funneled to the workers through Moses, and the workers are putting them to use. However, there is a problem, and it is a good problem. There is simply too much. That's not a problem we run into very often, the too much problem, but here we see it. One word dominates this section, excess. The people have donated so much that they have to start returning it. And we read that in verses six to seven. They have to start bringing it. They have to, the, the people get back what they have donated. Both the excess itself and this verb restrain. The people had to be restrained. I think of a pit bull on a leash, just sort of pulling and pulling and pulling. And you're really hoping that that thing is restrained. This is the idea. They want to give. They want to donate. And they're being restrained. They're being held back. The momentum is in the direction of giving and doing. And they're being restrained. The excess and the restraining are meant to show the obedience of the people. This is a full-blown picture of covenant renewal. Think about that for a moment. What would, what would covenant renewal be without the shining star of obedience in the midst of that. God has not just forgiven them. He is working inside of them. Do you see that? It's not merely forensic. We we need to differentiate between justification, God's legal act whereby he imputes Christ's righteousness to us and our sin to Christ, and he reckons us right in his sight. That is forensic, it is legal, justification functions in this way. That's how we are meant to understand the doctrine of justification. But this does not happen apart from regeneration and sanctification as it's launched out in our lives. God forgives his people, but he also works inside of his people, which means that the absence of a transformed life shows the absence of a new standing. To claim that we have a new standing with God because we prayed a prayer or in our own minds appropriated some gospel truth to claim a standing with God without a transformed heart and a transformed life is a lie. And that's exactly what John says in 1 John. He says, if you walk in darkness, then you lie. Do not practice the truth. God is light. To know God is to walk in darkness light. God is doing all of this work, this renewing, this forgiving, this changing of hearts. He is doing all of this 
work to further launch the story of redemption. Redemption that will culminate in the coming of Christ, the worship of the Gentiles, the restoration of Israel, and the tabernacling of God with man at the end of time. This is our story. The construction of the tabernacle is our story. The, The preparations for it is our story. God has renewed the covenant. The signs of that are showing forth. And all of this is leaning towards the coming of Christ and the salvation of individual men, women, and children gathered here today. This is our story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have been merciful to us in giving us your word and showing us who you are and what you require of us as your people. Lord, would we be those who trust deeply in your grace and what you have done. And Lord, may we be those who truly obey you. Not just use that language, but truly obey you. Obey your Word. Father, I pray specifically uh, as we're here this morning, Lord, where there has been this kind of constant churn in lives, uh, where it's just falling back into things, Lord, or, or just continuing to spiral out of control. Lord, I pray that this notion of disobedience and obedience would ring loudly in all of our ears. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you, Lord, that you dwell in your people. You dwell not just with us, but in us. And you dwell among us as we gather here today. We praise you for this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.